Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. You may be seated. I'm going to share, well, no, that's not a ha. I'm going to share some words of Torah. So maybe seated. I'll wait till it's quiet. My daughter thinks I'm hysterical. We're having a little father-daughter unintentional comedy routine as we're conducting Shabbat services for all of humanity. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is the strangest part of this. It's one thing to daven without people because I daven alone all the time, but to give a drash to chairs. <laughs> well, these chairs are not frowning at me and chairs are not falling asleep. And chairs are not talking amongst themselves. They're listening carefully. So I'm going to try to speak towards the camera, but I've got to say it's very awkward. So I'm going to mostly try to uh, conjure that you're there. Oh, my daughter's going to be an audience member. Hi. So I have a cousin, Cheryl, who might even be watching this because I, I think our, our family knew that we were going to be live streaming this. Uh, she lives in the East Coast. She's my first cousin, clo- my, my, my closest cousin in age to me. When we were kids, and the cousins and the siblings would like be all going after the same thing, whether it was a cookie or ice cream or a toy, my cousin, even at age six or seven, had an ingenious way of turning around the, the, the rivalry and the sense of who had what on us. She would say, and, and it confused us, we didn't know how to respond. She would say, ha ha, you have a cookie and I don't. Right? So normally we taunt, ha ha, I have a cookie and you don't. And she would reverse taunt. And either it was like brilliant reverse psychology, or she really felt miserable that she didn't have and she was just trying to make herself feel better about it, or some part of her then, which is still part of who she is right now, recognized that when you don't have and someone does, you don't always have to feel it as a lack. If you don't have and someone else does, you can feel happy for them and blessed that you don't have something that you would regret losing. Right? That's the weird thing about having things. Everything that you have and enjoy having becomes something that you would regret losing. And everything that you see in someone else's hands that they have that you want invokes without even trying it the 10th commandment to do not covet it's so hard not to have what someone else wants and it's so hard to part with things that we have so I wonder if part of her was saying you have the thing and I don't and I'm in the better situation I'm glad you have it because now I'm not burdened with losing it some of you know from teaching that I do I like paradoxes I like two sides of the coin. I like arguments that go at it from two different directions. I like that we have in our tradition both a thrust to be happy with what we have, the person who, who is who is rich, or who is happy, who is the rich one, the one who is happy with what he has. And the Dayenu, Dayenu prayer that we're going to sing in a few weeks at the Seder 
It's about being satisfied and content with not having everything. Right? If God had only brought us out of Egypt, it would have been enough. No, it would not have been enough, but we say it would have been enough to be sated and satisfied with not having everything we wanted. We also have in our tradition a push to strive for more. Strive to be a different person than you are today, tomorrow than you are today. To not be content with everything staying the same and staying still. I like that paradox. I like the paradoxes that are all over the Seder plate. Maybe we'll talk more about it in our e-Seder that we're going to do on the second night of Pesach. Just to name a few. What's charoset a symbol of? Well, we learned as a child that charoset is a symbol of the brown mortar that the, that the bricks, that were, it was between the bricks that the Israelites were making as they were slaves and that the wine in the charoset is, is like blood. It's a sign of our enslavement. Or, according to the Talmud, charoset, the reason why there must be apples in almost every charoset recipe is because it's a reference to the verse, tacha tatapuach or articha, underneath the apple tree, I awakened you, I allured you. It's a, it's a rabbinic midrash suggesting that even as enslavement was getting heavy and heavy, that the men and women would entice one another out in the fields under the apple trees and produce the next generation of Israelites. And that therefore, haroset is a representation of our inner strength and our grit and our determination. It's not a slavery food, it's a redemption food. How about matzah, right? The first story we hear about matzah as children in Hebrew school or day school is that we eat matzah because the Israelites were on the way out of freedom, out of slavery. And the Torah says that the dough didn't have time to rise. They had to bake it so quickly. That's why it's flat, right? It's the, it's liberation bread. But the first time we confront the matzah and the seder, we lift it up, we say, This is the bread of affliction, to suggest that the only bread that the Jews could get their hands on while they were enslaved was this thin, impoverished bread. So matzah is both freedom bread and enslavement bread. I love those paradoxes. There are financial paradoxes in our tradition as well. On the one hand, there's so many instruments in our tradition to make sure that, independent of what means, you have access to religious life and religious community. We just read a few weeks ago on Parshat Kitisa that the annual tax that the Israelites would give to the temple to fund things was machatzit hashekel, half of a shekel. And the Torah specifically says, ha'ashir lo yarbeh, if you were rich, you didn't give more than half a shekel. Ha'dal lo yamit, and if you were poor, you didn't give, sorry, if you were rich, you didn't give more, and if you were poor, you didn't give less. They set the tax at a level so that every single person could participate, and you couldn't outdo the other with your largesse. We have in our tradition the agricultural mitzvahs of peya and leket and shechacha, different ways that farmers were supposed to make sure that those who didn't have farms of their own, who didn't have oxen to plow their fields, still could benefit from the production of the agricultural society. There are flattening instruments in our religious tradition. No one's turned away. And it really should be that case even to today. Right? I hope that everyone in this community experiences that, that while we rely on the tzedakah of those who can give more. No one 
No one is turned away from our community or from any Jewish community if they're doing things right because of lack of access to funds. The korbanot that we read about this morning, if the person could not put their hands on a more valuable animal, then there was a less expensive alternative that they could do so that they could fulfill the mitzvah of bringing a korban. So on the one hand, we have in our tradition many instruments in place to make sure that you didn't have to stretch so much to check into spiritual life and Jewish life. At the same time, our tradition has it religiously and even financially religiously, it's not a bad thing to try to stretch yourself. It's a beautiful thing if you have it to spend a little bit more on a lulav and etrog as a way of of doing hidur mitzvah, enhancing your participation of the ritual. And even when it comes to the sacrifices, there's a hint that stretching to be able to give something of more value is worth it. But there's also an indication of the psychology of that stretch. I have to get the chumash, which I put aside. For those of you who are watching before, I asked you to consider two verses. Chapter 1 of Vayikra, verse 3, and chapter 1 of Vayikra, verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 3, which is on page 587 in our Chumash. If you are giving as your Ola sacrifice, as a sacrifice that was going to be completely burnt up on the altar, a bakar, cattle. You bring forward a pure, unblemished male, El Petach Ohamoe, to the door of the tent of meeting, Yakrivoto, that's where you sacrifice it. Lirtsono Lifnerunai. For acceptance that God will want it, Lifnerunai in front of God. The next category, verse eleven, sorry, verse ten, is not cattle but sheep. It looks almost identical. Vimin Hatson Korbano, if you're bringing a sheep, smaller animal, less expensive to raise, less valuable to divest yourself from it. If you're bringing a small animal at your sacrifice, min haksavim from your sheep flock, o min haizim, or your goat flock, la'ola, as an ola sacrifice that goes all the way up, zachar tamim yakrivenu. You also have to bring it as a unblemished male. The Abarbanel, who is a 15th and 16th century commentator from Portugal and Italy, he says, if you compare these two verses, what's different? We mentioned one of them. One is cattle, large animal, expensive. One is sheep, smaller animal, not nearly as big of a gift to, the, to God and to the temple. One of them, the cattle, has this phrase, lifnei adonai, in God's presence. Whereas when the Torah speaks about the sheep as the olah offering, that phrase in front of God is not there. Why? Is it just a question of the meter of the verse? Does the trup, the musicality of the verse, have it be that it should be in one verse and not the other? The Abarbanel says this has to do with the psychology. Obviously, that's an anachronistic word, but you get the, the meaning. The psychology of giving and stretching. Cattle is more expensive to this day. It's a bigger animal, costs more to produce. And when you give or donate something of greater value... He says, and I agree with him on some level, even if you are a generous and altruistic person, there is some sadness at the moment of giving. It's okay to name that, even as a generous community. There is some natural human sadness when you give up something 
unless you're an utter saint, when you give up something. And when you give up something bigger versus giving up something smaller, even if there's more joy because of the joy that you're creating by giving it, there's naturally some attendant larger sadness because you're divesting yourself of something bigger rather than something smaller. He says no matter how generous and altruistic we are, to want and to want to have and to want to not lose is a human instinct. And by giving more, we have less. That's natural, and we mourn it a bit, we grieve it, it hurts. And we feel it less, he would say, if the gift is smaller. We also, at the same time, might feel less joyful if the gift is smaller because we aren't able to help another person as much, but we also feel the pinch less. So the Torah says, according to Barbanel, it is worth it to give a bigger animal, to stretch a bit. If you can, if you have a, a, a cattle, offer that as an olah. That's what comes first. And if you're having a hard time parting with it because it's hard to let go of a cattle, don't think of it, the Barbanel says, is what the Torah is saying, as if you're giving it to a person where you might have some rivalry. Well, that person's going to have it now and I'm not. Who's going to receive this cattle? Think of it as if you're giving it directly to God. It's not giving it to the Kohen. You're not giving it to Goldberg next door. You're not giving it to your cousin. You're giving it It's in God's presence that you're giving this gift. You're giving it to God's treasury. You give it with an open and joyful face as if you're giving yourself to God. And wouldn't you want to give more of yourself to the creator of the world and not less? This kind of giving, he would say, when you give to God, it doesn't diminish yourself. You actually add yourself to the spiritual makeup of the world. So if you're giving something big, do it, consider it as if it's lifnei Adonai in front of God and it'll make it easier to do. I think his thinking is both dated, but it works on some level. Because if you take out the human competition where we want to hoard and all of us naturally have some inclination to hold onto things of value for ourselves. It's natural, even not during emergencies. If you take out the human competition where we want to hoard so that others don't have more than us, and you put it into a divine realm, why would we hoard from God? What does it even mean to hold back from God, to hoard from the provider of everybody? And it gives strength to the notion that while even a tiny bit is enough, you should try to give even more in the spiritual realm. But I also wonder, with respect to the Abarbanel, if with our modern theologies, where the God concept is often abstracted, I don't know about you, certainly in a non-sacrificial system, in a tefillah realm that we live in, it's hard to think of God as a receiver it's hard to think of God as taking hold of something that we're giving, particularly because our worship is no longer actually giving a thing, a sacrifice. And maybe particularly in the moment that we're living through right now, my friends, maybe it's reverse. Maybe we'll feel more generous if we think of who will receive what we're surrendering rather than just offering it up to the heavens, which could be abstract and hard to really wrap our minds around. Maybe this is a moment where we turn my cousin Cheryl's playful 
childhood taunt into a tremendous blessing. Because I don't have X anymore. Because I stretched and I gave it. You do have it. And what I have as a result of that sacrifice, it's much more valuable. And it's much more holy. So I want us to think about the recipients of our korbanot. The recipients, the faces of the people who are going to get something because we are willing to do without. Because we are willing to sacrifice. And then we might really be able to say, you have it and I don't. And that raises me up. I miss you all. Shabbat Shalom. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.